0: Hi everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student run, student
1: focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Mel. I'm Sophia, and today we are so excited to be sitting down with Joyce Carol Oates. Born in upstate New York, Joyce has published over 40, now nearing 50 novels, not to mention a range of short stories, plays, and poetry. In addition to winning a National Book Award, two O. Henry Awards, the National Humanities Medal, and just last month, the Jerusalem Prize, congratulations, Um, Oates has also been a lifelong teacher, most recently at Princeton University, where she is the Roger S. Berlin Distinguished Professor of the Humanities. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Now, since our podcast inception, we've liked to ask our guests to talk um, about an inflection point in their lives, a place where they had to make a pivotal decision that came to define a period of time for them. Are there any points of inflection that come to mind for you?
2: Well, that's a very exciting question, because I often write about those points in my in my fiction, and particularly uh, most, most recently, exploring the possibilities of alternative lives. When one comes to a fork in the path, sometimes one takes a turn that's impulsive, you know, rather than decisive and meditated. So, I think most of our lives are made up of these contingencies which come rushing at us and we we sort of leap for something. I have had in my life impulsive moments but often very premeditated moments. So, one of the major turns in my life was when I was graduating from Syracuse University and I had the possibility of several fellowships. I chose to go to Wisconsin, to the wonderful University of Wisconsin at Madison. So I think that my ter- my life took a really positive turn. I met the man whom I would marry, Raymond Smith, who was a, an English PhD candidate. And then later on, together, we started a small press and a magazine, which, if I had gone somewhere else, obviously, would not have happened, so that was a major turn in my life
1: that was positive. And the fellowship you were doing at University of Wisconsin, what kind of fellowship was it? I got my master's degree in American literature,
2: so I wrote a thesis on Melville. There was a time in my life when I was quite academic. I was still writing. I was writing fiction and maybe some poetry, but I was pursuing a professorial career. But then after that, I decided to drop out of that particular Um, career and focus on my writing
0: so it's interesting to see now that you've come full circle and you you are a professor and have been for a very long time (laughs) yes it is interesting curious um for for many years you've had an amazing career that's given you the freedom to do many different things and things like starting a press and writing and also we're we're curious what what has driven you to teach and stay with it for so long even beyond the point where maybe it was economically necessary for you to do so well I should
2: explain that my earliest wish was to be a teacher when I was in grade school I greatly admired my teachers they were all women teachers and I really really I guess I love them and I admire them very much So I wanted to be a teacher before I thought I would be a writer. So always, then when I got a little older, I wanted to teach high school, and a little older than that, I wanted to be a professor. So it's sort of gone along with my age.
1: So you were initially published at a pretty young age, um, in your early 20s. And as somebody with a lot of experience in the editing and publishing world, we wanted to know what it was like when you were first published as a really young woman, like in the 1960s, and if you ever had to really fight for your work or really um, push for your ideas, or if you were ever in a situation where you had to let some projects die. I think I was
2: particularly lucky because, as an undergraduate, I won the Mademoiselle Fiction Contest, and I was maybe a junior. And, of course, it was all, an all-women competition, and so it was a feeling of uh, com- community and nurturing of women writing, and that was like an early uh, solace if I had been rejected by some you know, male... Um, contest I might have felt differently and then when I got a little older I was publishing academic writing on the initials JC Smith because I w- I married a man named Raymond Smith so I I thought I would have a career that was more androgynous or neutral like JC Smith but then I became more interested in fiction and then I was right always writing under my name Joyce Carol Oates I can't say that my experience was was particularly illustrative of anything you know i don't I'm not sure that I represent much more than myself. I was treated, I believe, quite well, and my first teaching appointment was at a, a Jesuit university where virtually ninety five percent of the faculty was male. But I was actually treated very well, which is not to say that I don't quite sympathize and understand that other women weren't. It's just that my own experience was maybe uh, felicitous or Fluke, and I was I was lucky.
1: Yeah, you mentioned um, after sort of pursuing an androgynous identity, you were publishing under your name, but you also published some books under some pseudonym names. Is that right? You have two different pseudonyms.
2: Yes, Rosamond Smith and and Lauren Kelly, but they're all women. Yeah, they're all women.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk to us a little bit about um, like the idea behind creating a pseudonym and it's very interesting to me that you have two different ones like do you see them those pseudonyms as sort of like their own personas that are publishing different works
2: well i could tell you exactly what the purpose was i had established a certain kind of reputation as a mainstream writer not necessarily a woman writer. and so whenever a book of mine came out it would always be compared to other books and when i was still a fairly young writer and i thought i would really s- like to start back at zero So, Rosamond Smith had no reputation, and I went to an agent who didn't know, um, she didn't really know who I was. I mean, uh, and she sent the novel to a publishing house, I think it's Simon & Schuster, where they didn't know I was Oates. So, everything was like beginning all over again, and I found that exciting and thrilling. And the novels written by Rosamond Smith are suspense, novels that are like cinematic movement they don't have a lot of exposition or description and they have a lot of dialogue and move swiftly so they're much shorter than my my usual writing and then after a while that Rosamond smith became known that it was me so i stopped with that but then i started with lauren kelly some years later because that was a new one and i did several books as lauren kelly again they're very suspenseful they read quickly. You could just sit down and, you know, turn the pages. <laughs> and so that, that's a different tone.
0: That's so interesting to hear about you talking not only about your own works, but about building up to essentially other authors' canons of yeah. works and pieces and writing different lengths, writing in different styles, really makes me think about just how much you've had to write to do all of these things. And it makes me wonder whether you um, consider yourself very disciplined and force yourself to be on the schedule of producing so many works. A lot of people would say that I'm pretty disciplined and ask me how how I work so much, but I really just think it's part of my personality and what I have to do to get through my day and keep myself happy. And I'm curious whether, for you, the works are part of some some larger goal to publish and continue publishing X number, or if it's just how you love to go about your day and you just write so much. And you've said that you don't consider yourself a, a quick writer, but it's amazing to see how much you've produced.
2: Well, I think we all love to work with our medium and if we are artists, like, we might like the smell of paint. If we're a musician, I li- I love the piano. I just love to play piano and I love the smell of the piano. Now, with language, we, we love to work with language. And so, the prospect of having a whole morning where you're writing and then rewriting, and maybe doing a little reading and then writing, you know, to me that's pure delight. So, I don't have to force myself to do that at all. Sometimes when I've agreed to do a review, if I don't really love the novel or the book, I might feel that I have to push myself. Mm-hmm. But with my own writing, I've elected to do it. So it's just a matter of
1: spending time on it. And it is it is very pleasurable. We've heard that you often write things longhand. Um, and that's sort of like your drafting process. So. A question we had is, who types it up? Do you type it up and oh, keep course. it sort of close <laughs> to you? Okay. Oh, of course. <laughs> I just sort of scribble on,
2: on sheets of paper. That I fold them vertically, and if I'm traveling, I might, I might write on a scene. Then when I'm working with my laptop, I have those pieces of paper out like, on a table or they next to me on a sofa. I'm just kind of looking at them. I find it really, really helpful to start a scene in longhand with like, people talking You know, and then when I start working on it, it all gets much more thicker and more detailed. But that skeletal outline in handwriting is really important.
1: Do you ever use the pieces of paper like to rearrange the way your story is going to go? Yeah, I've heard Nabokov (laughs) did that, that's why I'm asking.
2: I think Nabokov wrote on little index Index cards cards, and shuffled them around. I have these pieces of paper and then I look through them quickly and I see like what is the first scene, and I put a one there. And then the first one that I've written might be like the 15, and I do it with my students too. Like I read their manuscripts, and sometimes I see that the story really begins on page two. So I'll put a number one there, and I'll say this is actually the beginning. Huh. And then I say, but you can take material from the beginning and put it here, you know, like page seven or something. So I kind of move it around, and I show it to them. I say, you see what I'm doing? Here's your beginning, and then number two is over here. So I, I put it really clearly so they can just see it as an editor for them. And if they follow that, the organization is a little, a little more uh, graceful than what they might have had. Yeah.
0: Thinking more about some of the intricacies we've heard about your work, we read that you actually dispelled a rumor that you wrote books in faculty meetings, which you say oh. you do not. <laughs> but that made us curious whether, so silly, yeah. what do you think is the most interesting or, or wild rumor you've ever heard about yourself as a writer? Are there any stories that have sort yeah, of circulated the world?
2: They're, they're kind of silly stories, so I don't think I'll repeat them. They're not malicious. It's more like they're silly you know, the people who don't know me, they say, oh, Joyce had seven typewriters and she, <laughs>
1: she, she moved <laughs> around
2: and, you know, that, it's just so silly. I think Margaret Atwood said something about fame is all, is the accruement of all these silly things about you, you know, and you're not really represented by the, these things at all. Most writers spend time just sitting and, and writing Norman Mailer said, there's nothing romantic about being a writer, you sit and you write. You know, whereas a poet can move around a little more, the poetry is much more, it's much more manageable. But if you have a manuscript like a 800 pages, it's like this big thing that you have.
1: One other question I want to ask you about um, your writing is you have written a number of children's books. Um, which you're often not asked about, I found, and they all seem to feature cats. That's
2: right. <laughs> Each one is based on a kitty, my kitties. Your own kitties. Oh, really? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, when they start off as kittens. That's they, great. That books is so are cute. About kittens. Mhm. Yeah.
1: So I'm just curious, how long would it take you to write one of those children's books, and do you use it as sort of like a break? maybe a happy break from heavier stuff you're working on?
2: Oh, definitely. Have you heard of a magazine called Kazoo? It's a magazine for girls between the ages of about 8, eight and 11. Girls, it's the idea is to empower girls, so they, they read these stories. So I had a commission to write a short story that would be illustrated for Kazoo magazine. So I had, I had an older kitty named Cherie, and then um, a homeless kitty came like through our backyard, and the homeless kitty eventually came through the cat door and kind of moved in, <laughs> you know. And so I I integrated the kitty coming in with the home kitty and how at first the home kitty was hissing and she was so upset. But then later on, she got to like the other kitty. So she, they became friends. So I wrote that as a children's story, Cherie and the Stranger Cat, and it's all... It's all about bringing somebody new into your life, you know, and making them welcome. First, you're afraid and resentful, but then you get to like him. And, and the stranger kitty was named Sheba. I c- it was a real kitty. I can show, <laughs> I can show you a picture. You know. So in the, in the little story, it's very sweet. It's very sweet. And but it's a little girl who lets the kitty in. Mm-hmm. Like she's about eight years old.
0: Wow! I never, I never would have guessed that there was so much of a, a story behind your your kitten stories. Oh, all of them. Each one, yeah. That's Uh awesome. And uh, we would love to ask you so many more questions that we had prepared, (laughs) but uh, to ask the last question, which is always how we have to end our interviews, um, is to ask you what your personal definition of success is and thinking about the student audience that is going to be listening to our conversation, what is maybe something you would tell them about pursuing their own definitions of success?
2: I really don't understand the idea of success. Success and failure to me are, are sort of empty terms. Most people live lives that are shifting emotionally each day is a new challenge. People who won the Nobel Prize and who are very wealthy nonetheless have days where they're in a very sad, melancholy moods, where they feel maybe feel even depression or despair. The idea of material success is not is not really uh, psychologically valid. I mean, you might think so if you don't have it. If you say you're very poor, you think you have $4 billion, dollars, you'd be happy. But I think that's probably not the case. I think the more money people have, the more anxiety they might feel about losing it. Now, for a writer, we're like we're like corks bobbing in, s- in some turbulent water. We might have a really good day and feel excited, but then the next day you read what you've written and you think, well, it wasn't really that good, I have to do it. I have to do it over again, so then you might your little court goes down a little. <laughs> 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 Virginia Woolf talked about her relationship with her, her lesbian lover, and she said, I'm like, I'm like a, a top on a, a fountain. When, when we're happy together, my spirits go up, but then they sometimes go down. So that's how I feel.